If you're listening on our podcast, as I know many of you are, we hope that you will support CSP by going to our website, www.occsp.org, and making a donation. We would very much appreciate it. Today's topic, summing up Jewish history and Jewish memory, reflections on history and community. Please come up, Professor David Rubin, for your final one-month scholar program. Um, I survived. I did it. Um, <laughs> thank you. I, I just want to say, first of all, <clears throat> uh, thank you to Ari. Um, and of course, Ari couldn't do it alone. Thank all of you as well uh, for the remarkable achievement of creating this institute of learning. Uh, someone referred to it as uh, one of the rabbis as the Lair House. You know, the Lair House was that great institution founded by Buber and Rodenzweig in Germany in the 30s, uh, a place where pure learning went on, on the highest level. Um, don't take it for granted. It doesn't exist in many places at all, period. Um, we live in a dumbing down or a dumbed down Judaism, uh, American Jewish community. Uh, and the fact that you aspire for so much more uh, is an enormous tribute uh, to your commitment as Jews, as human beings, and of course, uh, but without a leader and without uh, a creator of all of this, it would not happen. So the synergy between you and Ari is remarkable, and I stand in awe of what I've seen and what I've experienced with you, and I really thank you for that. Uh, I also want to thank publicly Sybil and Mike uh, for their hospitality, may I say, after 27 days, friendship uh, as well. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the fact that they were with me, supporting me and, uh, and Phyllis in all kinds of ways. Um, and we loved being in Seal Beach. It was really terrific. Um, so <clears throat> a lot of this is just going to sort of flow out. We'll see how it works tonight. Um, it was kind of a filler I put it in the end, but then I started thinking about it and thought it was actually quite important to end this way. So um, what, here's what I want to do. I want to talk about a very famous book that was published about 27 years ago. Um, <clears throat> and then I want to critique it. And then by way of teaching a medieval text, and I don't know if you brought this text with you. I have the English translation, but here's that. This is from a rabbinic Bible. A mikraot gedolot. If you don't have it, I'm just going to sort of wing it by sort of teaching it to you orally without really reading a lot of it because it's it's. And but it is in your. You should have an in. You know, a uh, on. You can check it on your email uh, <clears throat> and come up with it if you do have it. Um, I did want to teach that text, and then I have some final reflections, assorted thoughts. We'll see how coherent I am at the end, but I will do my best uh, right up to the end, and I hopefully will finish um, not only uh, in the right time, but maybe even, I don't want to promise something I can't deliver, something maybe a little shorter, so you can make your last comments and reflections and, um, and questions and whatever you want to do. Uh, or, and then we go back to the prizes and all of the other goodies that will follow. Um, so here is the book that I want to talk about. I do have the title page here someplace, if I can find it. Uh, now, all of a sudden, I can't. Just one second. Um, oh, it's right here. Uh, 
So the book is by Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi. Uh, I can pass this around if you haven't seen it. Um, called Zachor. What does Zachor mean? Remember, Remember right? The commandment Zachor. Um, Jewish history and Jewish memory. Uh, it was originally given, oh, and here is the book. Um, and this is the, 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 the newer edition with a very strange introduction by Harold Bloom. Harold Bloom was my colleague at Yale for many years. Harold Bloom is this awesome critic of literature who reads everything uh, and is scary and is under, uh, totally, un, uh, you can't understand what he's talking about. Uh, he puts this in the canon with the Bible, the Talmud, the Zohar. Uh, th this becomes canonized through Harold Bloom's introduction. Uh, it's kind of weird, but Yerushalmi's book is definitely worth reading. I'm gonna give it back to you. And um, it obviously made a stir in its time. It was a series of four lectures that he gave at the University of Washington. I, I did the lectures later on, and my, 19, uh, my 2014 book came out through the same Strum lecture series at the University of Washington. But Yerushalmi gave one of the first ones, and this book became a mini classic. Very small book of four lectures, but an attempt to th rethink the Jewish past and particularly the dichotomy between memory and history. And this he got from a sociologist named Holbach, who had argued the following. First of all, uh, the dichotomy in Judaism. Let's focus on Judaism primarily. In the Bible, I don't have the exact number, but he tells you in the first chapter, there are some 300 uh, times when it says Zachor. Zachor, can you remember any Zachors? Zachor at Amalek, that's a... Zachor at Yom HaShabbat Lekodshio, right? Remember uh, the Sabbath to keep it holy. Remember Amalek, and so on and so forth. Constantly, the biblical text asks, evokes within us the sense that we can, we must remember. And also, and here is the text I'm gonna look at in just a second, Al uh, Tishkach, don't forget. In other words, remember, remember, remember. That seems to be a cardinal principle of biblical Judaism. And what Yerushalmi does is to trace it through its long history, into the rabbinic period, into the medieval period, and finally the flourishing of historical literature uh, uh, in the early modern period. And the last chapter deals with his own reflections as an historian. So uh, these are studies of the past. I actually created a number of years ago, and I'm actually giving the course uh, in the fall at Penn uh, for an honors uh, seminar called Jewish History and Jewish Memory. I left off the Zahor part, but it's basically a course where I deal with Jewish historiographical writing. I look at Jewish views from the past, from the biblical text all the way to uh, contemporary uh, writing. Um, and uh, this book stimulated all kinds of approaches some of them negative, some of them positive, mostly positive, because the writing of this book, I mean, Yerushalmi was a brilliant lecturer. Uh, he died a number of years ago of cancer. He was at, uh, a professor for many years at, the at Columbia University, uh, trained some really remarkable doctoral students. His most passionate uh, Hasid is David Myers at UCLA. Uh, and David recently published a book which has a similar title, Jewish History and Jewish Memory, uh, a series of essays about on Yerushalmi and so on. Uh, so David has kept his memory alive. Um, what is this book, so what this book is all about? So on the one hand, there is this remarkable need to recall the past. 
the mitzvah of zikaron, of remembering. On the other hand, Yerushalmi sits in his office at Columbia and he says, am I a rememberer? Is that the role of an historian, a modern historian? What does it mean, the emergence of the modern academic study of Judaism? What do we do? We analyze, we look at the past, we reflect on it, we compare it with other uh, cultural pasts. Uh, we are analytical, we unearth everything, warts and all, when we study the past. And then we publish our books, one after the other, writing one academic, writing to another academic. And who really cares? And I, he laments the fact that he has this whole big pile of books sitting on his desk. The last chapter is this wonderful personal reflection. And he says, is this really worth anything? Or he asked the other question, uh, which is a question that comes right out of the Haskalah. I'm putting it into Hebrew, but, I, but I'll translate it immediately into English. Who am I writing for? Who am I working for? Who cares that there is an historian sitting at Columbia University uh, writing about the past? Is that the same thing as remembering? When Jews remember, they remember selectively. They remember good things. They remembered, uh, memory is a kind of sacred memory. In other words, to preserve the myths of our past, we remember selectively. We don't remember everything. We don't want to know, for example, we want to know about the, the wonderful culture of Eastern European Jewry. We don't, know, we don't want to know about the criminals and the prostitutes and all kinds of things that were going on in the, this same community as well. Who cares about that? We only want to remember the good parts of the past, which somehow energize us and enliven us uh, and make us understand better the present. In other words, our, and our memory is also a ritual memory. Through kiddush, through lighting candles, through doing all of these things, we remember, remember what we like, we, 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 we hold the kiddush cup, uh, and there or also remember what? Yitziat Mitzrayim. Remember Zechoret uh, Shabbat, and so on. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, memory is a memory focused on our sacred life, on the meaning of the community, on how it will nurture us. As Yerushalmi puts us, Jews don't want to know the past for its own sake. They want to know what is eternal, what is, uh, how the past can be linked to our own contemporary world. Um, and thus there is a dichotomy, as the sociologist Holbach points out, between memory and history. They're not the same thing. And therefore, he asks the question again, how do I fit into the Jewish community? Should Jews read me? Should Jews care about me? And he kind of laments at the end. He's not sort of sure. There is a kind of a small ray of hope. But basically, he is not sure how exactly this new animal, the new academic, really fits in to a Jewish community which had nurtured memory, but nevertheless, not necessarily the memory that the academic historian, the analyst of the past, uh, brings to the table. So that's Yerushalmi. Now, I, I want to criticize that view and obviously argue, as I've done in my 21 lectures, uh, that there is a bridge between the academic and the community. Uh, I wasn't the first to raise this. Uh, already, uh, when the book uh, appeared, uh, Yerushalmi had two major critics. One of them was Ismar Shorsh, who was at that time the chancellor of the Jewish Logical Seminary of America, uh, who wrote uh, some remarkable work on the history of Wissenschaft des Judentum, a word I've used once or twice before. Anybody remember what that means? 
right? The science of Judaism, which is the German word for <coughs> the beginning <coughs> of the academic study of Judaism in 19th century Germany. And particularly in a brilliant, brilliant essay that Ismar Schorsch wrote on Heinrich Gretz, the great 19th century German historian. Um, he argues the last line of the essay is quite remarkable and it sets him apart from Yerushalmi. After talking about Gretz against the background of his time, uh, he was anti-reform, he was a traditional orthodox historian, uh, nevertheless he was sort of critical of the past and so on. He was also fighting, defending Judaism, apologizing for it, explaining it, and also fighting off the anti-Semites of his time. Uh, uh, an, an unbelievable career of the 19th century. At the end, the last thing that George says in the essay is, uh, perhaps he was the greatest historian of his generation, but for sure he was the greatest darshan. Darshan, of course, is the Hebrew word preacher, homilist, sermon giver. In other words, he was really writing a narrative <coughs> by which German Jews could raise up their heads and be proud of their own heritage. So here was an academic who was functioning as a vital part of that community and it's memorializing the past, not simply apart and separate from it. <clears throat> the other uh, interesting critic of Yerushalmi, who is much more difficult to understand, but he was also a very great historian who taught for a while at UCLA and then went on to Berkeley, um, and perhaps he was at Stanford as well as Amos Funkenstein. Do you, anybody know that name? Uh, spent many of his years, a German uh, Jewish historian, uh, who came out uh, and spent most of the years, and he uh, died about a few years even earlier than Yerushalmi. Both of them died from cigarette smoking, uh, from lung cancer. Um, and I, Amos Funkenstein, and, uh, and he has several very important essays against the whore in which he argues for, as you will see, the merger of history and memory. But now, I, I, I don't want to make this into an academic uh, debate between historians and scholars. I have, I'm really going to talk nitty gritty tonight. But I have to uh, perform my rabbinic function uh, in studying a text. That's the way we started 21 lectures ago. And that's how uh, I want to end. Now, um, I don't know how well I'm going to do without having this in front of you. But um, I, I, first of all, I want you to see the Hebrew. Uh, how many of you have ever studied a rabbinic Bible before? All right, so you, so you read the Hebrew and you could, so basically, I mean, I could speak all, all, uh, completely about simply the formatting of the page since, uh, you know, one of my interests is the history of the book itself. Uh, the first rabbinic Bible was printed by Daniel Bomborg in Venice in the beginning of the 16th century, about the same time he published the first Talmud. Daniel Bomborg was not a Jew. Uh, how is this formatted in this way? So what do you have here? So you have uh, on this side the, the biblical text, right? Uh, I'm reading from uh, Devarim from uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, over here is the Aramaic, the Targum, okay? So you, the Aramaic text, the translation that emerges uh, early uh, in, in, in the ancient period. And then you have all of the commentators. So always in the inside of the page is Rashi. 11th century France, northern France, right? Uh, not Vic Rashi, played from New York Yankees. You know that? Uh, no, I, I was a bad joke. Uh, this is Rashi from uh, the 11th century, northern France, uh, from the, the city of Troyes, which is about an hour from Paris. Um, over here is Ibn Ezra, 
12th century Spain, uh, very important philosopher, exegete, uh, astronomer, astrologer, uh, very important for the history of science and the history of astrology in particular, uh, and has an enormous impact like Rashi on later Jewish thought and also Christian thought as well. Uh, there are two others on this page. As these rabbinic Bibles get bigger and bigger, more of these guys make it around the page. But you see how the comment So you see you have here a whole panorama of Jewish history on one page. So over here is Ramban. Who is Ramban? Nachmanides, not Maimonides, Nachmanides, 13th century. Exeget, polemicist against Christianity, uh, the disputation of, of Barcelona, 1263. Um, and extremely, and, and also uh, the so-called father of the Kabbalah. In other words, Kabbalistic writing emerges in the 13th century and it's associated with Ramban's name. Uh, Ramban uh, lived uh, in northern Spain. Uh, and then finally, Sforno. Anyone ever hear of Sforno? Yeah. Yeah? yeah. So why? It was, uh, how do you know Sforno? Yeah? Well, you know Sforno. We know everything. But I, but I, I shouldn't have on you. But uh, someone that does... Oh, go ahead. Tell us. Who, yeah. You read him. All right. That's a good answer. Um, but isn't... Wait. No. The Bertinor is the wine, not Sforno. But uh, all right. So Sforno is a 16th century exegete. Italy, also uh, a work, or a, a meme, which is a major philosophical work, which was also written in Latin. Uh, an extremely interesting thinker of the early modern period. So on this page alone, you have four, and there are other commentators here and so on. How did this book emerge in this particular format? Any idea? And where did the techniques come from? You're on the right track. Uh, yeah? Parallels the Talmud with the commentary and the Yeah, no, he he said more or less the same thing. That's 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 correct. But where did they get it from? They got it from canon law. Uh, these were Christian printers that put this together. In other words, I love to take. You know, we have. I I, I hope I didn't mention this already. After twenty lectures, I don't know what I said. Uh, but um, I love to take my yeshiva students into the rare book room at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I, I offered, Ari, if he comes there, I will take you on a tour of our rare book room, which is one of the great libraries of Judaica, uh, in, certainly in the United States and in the world. Um, and there I take out the Bamborg uh, uh, Talmud and also the Bamborg Mikra Otgedolot. This is called Mikra Otgedolot, the, the rabbinic Bible. Um, and I say to these yeshiva bachers, so is this the way God gave the Torah on Sinai? <laughs> And they hadn't thought about it, you know, the, sh the shots. Uh, and then I tell them the ironic fact that this was created by a Christian printer. Uh, and it imitates Christian canon law. Um, not the content, obviously, but uh, the formatting. Uh, so this is part of the history of the book. So it's an interesting story, but that's, I can't waste any more time on this. All right, so now the text. Oh, here is the text. I will read it first in Hebrew, and then we will go... Um, I don't even have any, yeah, I do have everything here. So does anybody have this text or nobody? Uh, this is the Hebrew and this is the, my English translation. I emailed it all to you. Yeah, all right, okay. Well. So I'm not gonna read it all. I'm gonna simply just give you a synopsis of what I'm reading, but let me read at least the text. The text that we are studying is Deuteronomy 4.9. Uh, and it begins this way. Uh, and I bet Ahuva could give me her own commentary on this text. So it begins. I have a question. Yes. Is it the first version or the second version of the... Uh, of the Mikrot Kedolot? 
they're not so different, are they? They are a little different. A little different. Um, this is just the modern microgidolot that I'm looking at right now. So this is not this is not the Bomberg edition I have in front of me. No, not at all. So this is just the modern one that I purchased in Jerusalem. You know, a new a new edition. So the text begins. Ah, fantastic. All right. Yeah. No, we have to have a little Torah session before we close here today. Okay. So um, so take the text. So in the meantime, I'm just going to read you the verse that we are looking at. We are looking at commentaries on one verse. And here is the verse. And I'll give it to you first in Hebrew uh, and then in English. So it begins. Rak hishamer lecha ushmor nafshecha me'od. Pen tishkach et hadvarim asher u'enecha. Upen yasu milvavacha kol yemechayecha. And the English translation, Deuteronomy 4.9, but take utmost care and watch yourself scrupulously so that you do not forget the things that you saw with your own eyes and so that they do not fade from your mind as long as you live and make them known to your children and to your children's children, okay? So you have my English translations in front of you now, more or less? Okay, good. Now, the question, of course, here is one of the many verses. <clears throat> Either zachor, remember, or don't forget. And the question is, don't forget these things that you saw with your own eyes and so on. What things are they talking about? That's the question, all right? Now, I guess they saw, you know, they're talking about the, the Ten Commandments, they're talking about receiving the law on Sinai. Obviously, in a generic sense, we can, it's describing something that has just happened. Don't forget, remember what you saw. That is absolutely critical. But nevertheless, this poses an exegetical problem to those who are commenting on this verse. And what I want to suggest, and he, here is, why am I giving you this text? Because the way Yerushalmi set up his argument is that there is a kind of fixed notion of collective memory of the Jewish people. And the historian comes and challenges that with his own anal academic analysis. What I want to argue is that there's no such thing as a fixed memory. And that memory itself is a kind of fluent, transient thing. It never is fixed in time. And I want to illustrate that by suggesting that here are four major exegetes who are looking at this verse and each one of them comes up with a totally a different understanding of what we are to remember, okay? So, and I'm not gonna read all of these texts, but I wanna show you what I have in front of you. So first of all, if I were giving a whole lecture on this, I would, you know, look at number one. I would, first of all, as a good comparative historian, talk about views of memory in the classical world, and I would talk about Plato and Cicero uh, a sacred view. Plato, of course, when you forget or when you remember, you are recalling something that comes from a kind of divine or sacred past, all right? There's something sacred about the act of remembering. And obviously that parallels to a great extent with the rabbis and what the tradition of Judaism is talking about. Cicero, uh, the great expert on rhetoric, remember rhetoric, remember Messer Leon from the first uh, lecture, 21 lectures ago, uh, again, I'm, you're commanded to remember, you can't forget. I mean, that's, uh, that's the idea here. Uh, <clears throat> Cicero has a more kind of practical 
uh, pedagogic view of memory. We learn, we, we, you, if you're gonna be a speaker, you look like an, an idiot if, you're, if you forget. So remember, right? So there are, there's a practical necessity, uh, a technical view of, of memory, perhaps. But then I, what I wanna go on to number three, and I, I, I'm not gonna read this whole text, but I wanna show you that the rabbis already dealt with this text at length, and this is only one long example of it. What is remarkable is that the four exegetes that I'm gonna talk about ignore the rabbinic view entirely and go their own way. So we are speaking about multiple voices, multiple understandings of this one verse. A Babylonian Talmud Menachot 9.9a and b, Rabbi Joseph referred to a teaching which compared the tablets and the pieces of the tablets. What, what is he referring to, Shivrei Luchot? What are the Shivrei Luchot? Ahuva knows, but somebody else. The broken, and, and what happened? So the first time Moses broke them, right? So the question the rabbis asked, it's a good repentant question, what did he do with the pieces? You know, did he just sweep them up and put them in the garbage? No, they put them back in the ark as well because they're still sacred even though they're broken into pieces. So here the reference is to the tablets and the pieces of the tablets of the law left in the ark. He compares, uh, refers to a teaching which compares the tablets and the pieces of the tablets to a wise student who innocently innocently had forgotten what he had been taught. Such a student one does not shame. Reish Lakish, however, states that one who purposely forgets anything of what he has been taught breaks a negative commandment since it is stated, and here is our verse, but take utmost care and watch yourself scrupulously, etc., etc. Rabina, however, states take utmost care and so that indicates not one negative commandment, but two negative commandments because there are two phrases, right? But Rabbi Nachman bar Isaac states, nice rabbinic text, right? Um, three negative commandments since the verse states, take utmost care, watch yourself, so that you do not forget the things. One is guilty even if he innocently forgets since the verse states after, so that they do not fade from your mind. In other words, they have to use every word in the text to find meaning, to, to come out, draw a meaning out of that text. Uh, that is, those who purposely remove the teaching from their heart. Rabbi Dostai ben Yanai stated, this applies even to one who is overwhelmed by what he had learned and forgot. In other words, even an innocent kind of forgetfulness. So you see already how seriously the rabbis interpret this text and take particularly purposeful forgetting to be the cardinal, cardinal sin, a, a triple negative uh, sin. Now we move to the exegesis, and I want to do this very quickly because I really have to go on uh, beyond this text. But I just, I just think it's such a great text, I just had to teach it somewhere. Um, Rashi. Rashi gives us usually the very simple meaning of the text. He is the, the ideal of the pedagogue. He is for simple students who are beginning their journey in reading the biblical text and also the rabbinic text. He wrote a whole commentary on the Talmud as well. So here he, but take utmost care so you do not forget the things. Then if you do not forget them and do them truthfully, you shall be considered wise and discerning. But if you distort them because of forgetfulness, you shall be considered foolish. Now what is that referring to? Alternative <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no comment on that one, but that's good. Uh, but it's referring to a specific verse that's only a few verses earlier, which is, it, it, it refers to 
don't forget, you are a wise and discerning people. That's the reference. In other words, the reference goes back several verses earlier uh, in Deuteronomy 4.6. Uh, and therefore, for him, the issue of knowing or forgetfulness is about how we look in the eyes of the non-Jews. Uh, very interesting. In other words, am chacham v'navon. Our profile, our intellectual profile, uh, is at stake if we forget. And therefore, we need to remember. So that seems to, now Rashi, of course, knows the rabbinic text very well. And often he parrots it, but this time he ignores the rabbinic text altogether, nothing about the, the tablets and the broken tablets, et cetera, et cetera, and simply interprets it in relationship to a previous line in Deuteronomy. Abraham Ibn Ezra. Now, this is a little bit far-fetched. Those of you that know Hebrew may take me to account. Uh, I could read you the Hebrew, but in English, I can disguise it. Uh, but I'm, more, I'm telling you, it's, it's sort of a, but I, I needed it for my explanation. Uh, Abraham Ibn Ezra, but take utmost care of the reason. Uh, and in Hebrew, let me just show you what it says, so I, I'd be totally honest here. Raki shamer lecha hata'am. Im tishkach kol davar al tishkach et asher amadata besinai. Hata'am. What is hata'am? No, that's the tam. This is with it. Ta'am. Yeah, but there's also another meaning, the reason. Ta'ameha mitzvot. Ta'ameha mitzvot is a whole category of, of a subject studied in the Middle Ages. The reasons for the commandments. In other words, if you forget anything, don't forget the reason. Now, the reason why I'm emphasizing that one word, why? Because Ibn Ezra was a philosopher, an intellect like Moses Maimonides. And therefore, for him, what is important about remembering is to remember the reason why you did something. In other words, the rational reason, the intellect that is behind uh, the fact that we do certain things. So for him, hata'am is the key thing here, all right? So identifying him with a philosophical background from which he came from. Let's go on to Moses Nachmanides. Now, that's very long. Um, but if you just read just the beginning, you'll see where this is going. Before God mentioned the Ten Commandments, he warned by means of a negative commandment not to forget anything that happened at Sinai, nor should we remove it from our hearts for eternity. He also made a positive commandment that we should inform, etc., etc. The value of this commandment is very great, for if the words of the Torah had come to us from Moses alone, even though his prophecy had been authenticated by signs and miracles, it is possible uh, that a prophet may have arisen in our midst or a dreamer of dreams who might command the opposite of the Torah and would provide us with a sign or miracle. However, since the Torah was bestowed on us directly from God's mouth to our ears and our seeing eyes, there exists no intermediary and thus we deny any dispute and of anything who raises doubts. What's he talking about? Yep, you got it. This was the great disputant at the debate against Pablo Cristiani uh, in the 13th century. This was a man who committed himself to defining Judaism against those Christian uh, missionaries and others who tried to uh, intrude, in, uh, in to enter into the Jewish space and to convert Jews. Uh, the public disputation of Barcelona is well known. We mentioned in passing in one of our lectures, I'm sure, uh, this is a text where exegesis serves to answer the question, you know, it's not just Moses, it's God, and you better remember this accurately and directly, because if someone else rises up with a different kind of Torah and changes it around, you should know that that's false and we're true. 
So this is clearly in the context of the Jewish-Christian debate. That's what we need to, that's why we need to remember. So Nachmanides goes as in his own direction directly. And here I'm not on loose ground. I think that's why quite clear when you read this entire text, he's talking about Christianity. And then finally, Sforno. Sforno is uh, part of the Renaissance. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if I didn't mention him, uh, I wonder if Bernie did. Uh, but if he didn't, uh, Sforno is quite important and his commentary does reflect the world of the Renaissance. Take utmost care from the view of their scholars who deny God's existence, his ability, and providence since they conceive the rational proofs regarding this matter. He's speaking about the scholars of Padua. He's speaking about Pompanazzi in particular who essentially denied divine uh, providence and spoke about a rational proof uh, which was uh, against the Catholic religion. Uh, here is a Jew who absorbs that cultural ambiance, picks it up, and puts it right in his commentary. So my point, I think, is obvious. Um, each of these exegetes looked at the same verse, uh, and where is this one notion of memory of the past? Is there such a thing as a collective memory? Is there a fixed memory in time? Do we remember all the same? Or do we not look back at the past from the perspective of our own present situation, uh, our present concerns. What is the purpose of writing commentary other than to bridge the gap between the text and the reader? And the reader brings himself to bear when he understands the text from his own perspective. So here we have four remarkable texts uh, that are all speaking about the same verse, but all of them are pointing to a different aspect of what we are remembering when we remember at Sinai. So my point is that Yerushalmi's problem of setting, juxtaposing memory and history uh, is that memory is never a fixed, but it is a protean, it is a transformative uh, element of our past. We do remember things and we do make them, and we speak about sacred memory, but we impart different meaning to that memory every time we look back at the past, we think about the past, whether it's our immediate past, our own family past, uh, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, or even farther way back into the past as we look at, at Sinai or at Eastern Europe or at Spain or where, wherever we are looking at. So having said that, uh, what I want to do now is sort of pick up the pieces here. And let me just find, okay. Um, so Yerushalmi and the debate between Yerushalmi and his critics is an extremely fruitful one. And I still recommend extraordinary, if you're going to read just one small book uh, in Jewish history other than early modern Jewry, a new, uh, you know, that's, that's besides the point. But uh, this one you would probably have to buy yourself. Uh, but um, nevertheless, uh, it, is, it is a very good read. And I think you'll be very stimulated. Uh, it is a wonderful subject to study how Jews understand their past uh, and how, of course, they understand their present simultaneously. But here's what I want to say in bringing this lecture and the lecture series in conclusion. I also want to say when I said I thanked you, it wasn't just that you were attentive and that you were hospitable and nice, and, but the, it is quite remarkable to me that um, I can give, I, I didn't water this down. I wasn't speaking down to you, I hope. Uh, I was giving academic lectures. Of course I know, you know, after doing this for 45 years, that Jews don't want to learn, they want to be inspired as well. I mean, you know, that's part of it. Uh, learning is not enough. So I, I do have a few homiletical skills, even though I never served as a pulpit rabbi, uh, but I was the son of a rabbi, so I sort of picked it up uh, uh, along the way. 
Um, but still, I mean, the level of this lay, I, I was kidding with some of you, but I'm, I was also quite serious. Uh, I've lectured quite often to rabbinic groups, uh, and I tried to run a kind of rabbinic institute out of my institute at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and uh, I, I found you more attentive and asking uh, wonderful questions. I don't want to put down rabbis, uh, God forbid. But, uh, but clearly, I, what I'm suggesting is that uh, the, the, you know, with all of the resources that we have for Jewish learning, these kind of institutes don't just happen, uh, as I've said earlier, and I say it again because I am so impressed by it. But let me go back to a few random thoughts before I end and sort of bring this together. What I want to argue is that what happens in the beginning in the 19th century with the study of academic Judaism is that many of these people who are writing history books are indeed embedded within the Jewish people are not academics for their own sake, are not concerned with their academic career per se, <clears throat> but indeed <clears throat> are <clears throat> using the past <clears throat> to better understand the present. And sometimes they are very ideological. We mentioned Gretz. I could mention Dugnov, the great historian of uh, Eastern European Jewry. These were the two giants of the 19th and early 20th century writing multi-volume histories of the Jews. We could also mention the third great multi-volume historian, Salo Wittemar Baron, who <coughs> was himself the teacher of Yerushalmi. So this Shalchelet Kabbalah, this chain of tradition continues uh, right through, you know, David Myers and, and beyond. Um, but we could also speak about the Zionist historians, or we could speak about the socialist historians who utilize the Jerusalem School of, uh, of, of Jewish historiography. Uh, a, a subject that I, I told Ari uh, David Myers writes about at UCLA. Um, Bayer uh, and Dinur, all of these great Israeli historians who may or may not be known to you, uh, clearly were writing about Jewish people, who, but about messianism, about return to the land, because they were living out their Zionist dream, and therefore history was a handmaiden. History was a way of understanding uh, this Zion, Zionist experiment, this extraordinary achievement of a Jewish state. And therefore, their, his academic writing bolstered this. Dinor himself, who was the, the father of Israeli historiography, was also the director, was, was the head of the Department of Education of the Israeli government. So clearly, he became also the chief pedagogue of this Jerusalem approach to understanding history. And in our most recent times, just to give you just one more example of how academics and living Jewish experience go together. Um, we have seen a revolution in the last 20, 25 years in the study of women and gender in Jewish history, all right? Uh, unfortunately, I did not speak enough about women uh, in, in that, you know, hatati, I, 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 I confess my sins. But I want you to know uh, the years that I spent at Yale, um, uh, I was very fortunate to hire a wonderful uh, uh, historian named Paula Hyman. Uh, who unfortunately died a number of years ago, also of cancer. Uh, and, uh, but she was with me for a long time, and we built the Jewish Studies program at Yale before I came to Penn. Um, and there I learned my women's history from her, uh, and the importance of gender as a tool of analysis in understanding the Jewish past. Uh, the field has been revolutionized. I've mentioned an historian to Ari named uh, Elisheva Baumgarten, who studies rabbinic Ashkenazic materials from the point of view of gender and looks at the history of Jewish women. 
And there are several others who are doing the same thing, but not only women, men as well. In other words, it's part and parcel of the way we understand the past. We can't ignore gender when we talk about Jewish historical experience. And we see the perspective, as Paula Hyman and others have taught us, uh, that when we look at uh, the past through women's eyes, uh, we see a, a very different kind of history, a different vantage point in which to look at the past. These are contributions that academics have made, but when Paula died, it wasn't uh, just academics who came out to mourn for her. Um, it was indeed an outpouring of Jewish feminists who found in her writing uh, inspiration and meaning uh, for the present. So there are many examples I could give of the relationship between academic and the Jewish community. Um, and what I want to do uh, after suggesting these examples is to argue in the following. And I'm just going to make now two or three comments, and I'm going to bring this to a close. It is clear to me that the Jewish community needs the academic. Whatever Yerushalmi's doubts about sitting in his office on Morningside Heights, um, it is clear to me that the academic has the leisure and the luxury of creating new Torah, new ideas, new formulations, new constructions of the past, new insights into how to read this history. Also, the academic is stimulated by an academic community. So he, th he sees things analytically, or she sees things analytically, and she sees them in comparison with other histories and culture. That provides an insight into Judaism, which could be very lacking when one studies it only within an insulated world. In other words, I really honestly believe that the academic provides what Jacob Neusner once called, uh, and I mentioned his name in one of my lectures, if, you, if any of you can remember that, uh, Jacob Neusner calls Torah lishma, Torah for its own sake. In other words, the academic, uh, at least theoretically, is not writing for, to, for any ideological reason or working for any institution. He's writing simply to understand the past. In that sense, it is a pure kind of Torah he's creating. It is a pure way of understanding the past. And to nurture, to learn from that academic or to create a bridge between that academic uh, and, his, and the creation of the books that come out of this academic world and the Jewish community uh, is, is a remarkable goal in itself. In other words, we can't do any longer. The rabbis don't have time for the most part. There were times when there the were rabbis in the American Jewish history who were great scholars. And there are still a few of them. But most rabbis don't have the time, and I'm not blaming them. In other words, they are out there in the, in the, in the minefields. They are out there in the battlefront trying to hold on and to create a Jewish community. Uh, but for them to be scholars, uh, uh, some of them aspire to be, of course, uh, and are nourished by learning, uh, but of course, uh, for the most part, they are unable. So therefore, what has emerged with this extraordinary explosion of academic study within America and within the world uh, is that for good or for bad, these are the intellectuals of the Jewish community. And therefore, they have something to provide the larger community. But now I want to turn it around, because I want to suggest that the academic alone, and here is the Yerushalmi dilemma, here is this, this sense of despair or sense of, of puzzlement, what is he supposed to do with this learning, who reads me, who cares about me, etc. The Jewish community uh, may need the scholar, but the scholar also needs the Jewish community. There has to be a bridge. What the Jewish community does, beginning with its rabbis, is to take this learning, to absorb it, and to 
understand it in terms of real living, in terms of real life experiences. Or to put it another way, it sanctifies this learning. It makes it kadosh. It is only academic learning when it's in the university. When it enters the Jewish community, however, when you think about it, when you digest it, when you reflect upon it in terms of your own Jewish experiences, then it becomes holy. Then it becomes real Torah. So there is a symbiotic relationship then between scholar and community. The scholar is needed by the community, but he or she also needs the community as well. I want to sort of end in my rabbinic homiletical mode. You recall the lecture I gave some of you, I don't know how many of you were here, I think most of you, uh, on the Baal Shem Tov and the Gaon Elijah Vilna. Uh, I told you that I gave that as a kind of sermon before the Central Conference of American Rabbis uh, one year because I was trying to make a point to rabbis. I want to return to that. You recall I spoke about Schneer Zalman of Ladi, the founder of Chabad, and I spoke about Chaim of Volodzhin, the great disciple of the Gaon Elijah Vilna who creates the famous Volodzhin Yeshiva. And I argue that one was committed to spirituality, ruchaniyut, if you want to use the Hebrew word, to prayer, to worship, the other to intellect, mind, study, and so on. But what I tried to show was that ultimately, in the next generation, Schneir Zalman of Ladi became more intellectual, and Chaim of Elogin became more spiritual. And all of a sudden, the institution of the yeshiva looked more and more like a Hasidic community and the Hasidic community look more like a Talmudic yeshiva. And all of a sudden, this kind of, the, the, of course, the identity of these two groups remained throughout the 19th and 20th century. But what emerged was the possibility of being also learned and also uh, spiritual at the same time. And I, here I wrote a few lines which I, I want to uh, repeat. Um, we must be intellectual and mystical at the same time. Or this is a, actually a quote. I don't remember when he said this, but I actually wrote it down in this note of my friend Moshe Idel, the great scholar of Kabbalah. We must be mystics with a social conscience. I love that. He gave that in a lecture, and I had to write that down. Um, we must militantly resist a spirituality that is empty and superficial and vacuous without learning. Our spirituality, our charisma comes only from Torah, from serious encounters with texts and contexts, from great scholarship and great teachers, and from an inner need that propels us to grow spiritually and intellectually. The dichotomy of Wissenschaft, now you remember that word, the academic study of Judaism, and spirituality is patently false. The great founders of the academic study of Judaism were deeply spiritual, as Heinrich Gretz uh, exemplifies so fully. So I close with a story, and I'm sure one of your 16 lecturers must have told this story. If not, I'll be very surprised. Uh, there are many versions of this story, and I'm going to tell you my own right now. Um, the one that is the most classical one uh, is found in Gershon Sholom's Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, the last page. You could check it out. Remember, that's that great uh, introduction to Jewish mysticism according to the master Gershon Sholom. He ends, believe it or not, with a kind of homily, which is very surprising from a scholar of his stature and such an academic book. 
the story is told in many other versions, but here is my version, and I'm going to add a little piece of it to make my point as I close our lectures. There is a story of the Besh, the Baal Shem Tov, and his son. And I've also told the story, I uh, suggest his daughter, but that's probably not historically accurate. It's probably his son. Uh, of course, the story is not history either, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> leave it. You could tell the story with a daughter. I'm going to tell it with a son this time, or maybe with just a child. The Besht and his son, right before Rosh Hashanah, go off to the woods. Anybody know this story? You know this story. Um, and um, there, the Baal Shem Tov teaches his son a nigun. You know what a nigun is? Do I have to teach you a nigun to uh, illustrate? No, I won't. A nigun in the, in, the, in the forest, a melody, a song, before Rosh Hashanah. Uh, he does this every year. And this is the minhag that the Besh goes away with his son. And they sing a nigun in the forest. They celebrate the beauty of nature. They celebrate the beginning of, new, of the new year. And it is somehow recalled through this remarkable melody. Then the Baal Shem Tov dies, and his son continues the tradition with his son, taking him to the same place in the forest and singing the Nigun. The Nigun originally had words and melody, and the words and melody were recited accurately and carefully so that the son would memorize this and become a part of him. And then we go on to the third generation, and you can see where this going. And by the third generation, the son more or less knows the story, uh, the, the words and the melody, but somehow he has forgotten some of the words. And anyway, he passes on what he knows to his son, and they go back, uh, uh, and they continue this throughout their lifetime until the next generation. And the son by this time no longer knows the, 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 who is now the father, uh, it teaches his son only the nigun, the melody, because he can't remember the words any longer. And of course, the story goes on from one generation to the next generation until not only is the nigun uh, forgotten, the melody itself, but even the place, this is my own uh, embellishment, the place in the woods has now been dug up and, and they built a big high-rise uh, uh, you know, apartments and sold them for large uh, price. Um, <laughs> And all we have now is the fact that there is a memory of a custom of going and singing a song which we no longer remember, neither the words nor the melody. And then, of course, the next generation has forgotten it all. So my own take on this is simply, may we continue to sing the melody, but also to remember the words. Our good feelings are not enough. We cannot survive without the words, too, the text, the literacy, the intimate understanding of the textual culture we call Torah. So as we end our uh, institute for January and all the good feelings we have, uh, may we, uh, and I hate to say this, but it doesn't sound like me, but I will say it anyway, we, may we pray for the ability to imbibe both the melody and lyrics of the grand symphony of our Jewish survival. Thank you. So now, questions, comments? Yes, okay, Ari? Go for it. All right.
and I pick up my watch. So how, how, how long was that? Not too bad. All right, okay. Professor, uh, yes, go. What is the impetus for the growth of Jewish studies at universities? Uh, this is in fairly modern times. I mean, I remember when I began to to UCLA some years ago, but that was many years after I was there. Now, Jewish studies are in most major universities. Yeah. Um, uh, the impetus for the creation of Jewish studies programs around the country. Um, this more or less coincides with my career. In other words, um, maybe you know you could add another 10 or 15 years beyond my own lifespan as a professor. But um, clearly, um, there are many reasons for it. And I, I, I don't know how to answer you because I could give a whole lecture on this. As I do speak on, on, the, on the academic study of Judaism quite often. Um, Clearly, it emerged more or less in the 60s, and it was part of a cultural revolution, which part of it was the black explosion of black studies on campus, Puerto Rican studies, uh, Hispanic studies, uh, the emergence of ethnic study in general. In other words, it seems to me Jews benefited from that. That's one factor. A second factor is Jewish donors. Um, there are a lot of Jewish donors who would not give necessarily to synagogues or to uh, uh, institutes such as yours, um, but would like to see their name at universities. So the possibility of giving to a secular university but also giving to a Jewish studies program, uh, universities soon saw that this was enormous potential for raising money. Most of the, the large academic programs in Jewish studies in America are, have been funded by rich Jewish donors. That's a fact. Uh, that creates problems, but it also creates opportunities as well. Um, the third reason might be because um, it, it was legitimate to restore what I called, I think in one of the lectures, the third pillar of Western civilization, that it was really important uh, to, uh, to put Jewish studies back, not simply as a kind of propedeutic study for uh, Christianity or for biblical studies, but uh, in its own sake, it had a significance and importance it needed to fit in within uh, religious studies departments, Near Eastern studies departments, and uh, most importantly for me, history departments, uh, where it could be taught within the context of comparative history. Uh, so there are many other reasons, but those are, are three. Uh, and we have really done well. It is a success story. I mean, if I were to point out to you, <clears throat> things like the Association for Jewish Studies, the number of journals, the number of books that are published. Um, it is a revolution in Jewish learning, uh, unprecedented in Jewish history, I would even go to say that far. But as I lamented earlier, uh, the problem is, um, do people take advantage of these resources? Uh, and what will happen as the humanities across the university decline? Uh, will Jewish studies suffer a similar fate? Uh, I, I guess endowments mean permanence, but you never know with, within the context of the university. But anyway, it's mostly a very, very good story. Yes. Um, <clears throat> you, you started off uh, identifying that the whole, um, the whole uh, importance of, of interpretation lies in bridging the gap between memory and the facts, or the historical fact. But it seems to me that, well, you take your whole body changes, every atom changes. The only thing that creates your sense of, that guarantees your sense of continuous existence as a unified identity is your memory, the software. All the hardware is changing all the time. So 
if you think about, if, if you believe that, then the, the decision or the interpretation of what is a fact and what isn't, or the, the apprehension of what is a fact and what isn't, is basically determined by memory. Because memory, everything is seen through the lens of identity, and identity is coming from memory. So my question is, what do you do with somebody like a Finkelstein or a Sushkin who say, for example, the exodus is not a fact? Are they doing that? Where is that coming from? Is that a memory function? Are they trying to be, you know, how can we keep Jewish identity? Yeah. How does that collide? And how do you resolve that? Because it seems to me there's a circularity in it. Yeah, no, that's good. I, I hope you, uh, they understood the references you were making. Um, there'll, there'll be goats coming out. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, particularly the last part. I mean, he was referring to um, a group of biblical scholars, iconoclasts, who challenged the very foundation of the biblical narrative and so on. Speak about whether there was an exodus, whether there was a conquest. Uh, Finkelstein, uh, Phyllis, you'll recall, is the great debater with Amnon Bentor, our archaeology friend in Israel, uh, who, uh, you know, they're two archaeologists that very much challenged the very notion of what they're looking at in terms of the archaeological uh, data and so on. And, and the archaeological data does not support the texts, et cetera, and they get into a major debate. Um, yeah, is everything historians write and everything that they come up with in the past useful? Uh, obviously, uh, uh, the, the community has to be selective in terms of what it chooses to study from the past. But uh, on the other hand, uh, as you see, uh, when we refer, we evoke Sinai or Sinai, uh, we all see it quite differently through the vantage point of ourselves. I mean, it sounds like you understand uh, the psychological function of memory better than I do. Uh, but it seems to me that, uh, that again, uh, the specific content of a memory varies among individuals and among groups and among ages. Um, sure, uh, I, I'm not sure what Finkelstein does for uh, uh, the, the, you know, the survival of the Jewish people. Um, I find it interesting and e exciting to, uh, to, to be challenged by any kind of idea but that's more intellectual than it is spiritual, and that sort of weakens my whole point about bridging these two worlds. I guess, uh, therefore, not everything, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to make the admission that everything that scholars study is worth remembering, uh, is worth preserving, is worth passing on. And Yerushalmi said that as well in his book. I mean, there, you know, uh, all of these dissertations that appear in order to get tenure, in order to get a position, and so on, uh, is that really uh, the kind of scholarship? And just as you know, Ari goes through this very, very uh, difficult uh, selection process to pick a, a scholar who can also teach, um, uh, indeed, uh, we need to be selective uh, and understand. On the other hand, by closing off the possibilities that come out of this scholarship, uh, we are really missing something. And also, again, I don't want to make it a passive role. The community itself, by pushing the scholar to think about Jewish creativity and the Jewish present, is playing a service. In other words, as again, I go back to this symbiotic relationship. It, it, you need to demand of the scholars to think beyond their own footnotes, to think beyond their own uh, uh, esoteric knowledge, and to relate it to a community. So indeed, all scholarship, uh, uh, some scholarship is arid, boring, and useless uh, to a, uh, a community. 
but it is your role to open that world up so that it becomes useful, meaningful, spiritual, and significant. So that's the best I can answer that question. That was a good question. Yes. Uh, all right. Now the, the, the we'll do two more questions. Right. Boy, this, this, I, I, I feel deja vu already. The two, the two are who got their hands up. All right, go on. Whatever. The number of times during your lectures you've, and I've only been to ten. But during them, you've mentioned your students, uh, a lot of them are yeshiva, orthodox students, and you said you've even had non-Jews, and you've mentioned some Asian students. What I'm wondering about is the, the Jewish students who are not orthodox, not yeshiva, who are secular, and whether your experience is similar at all to one that I've noticed, where a lot of non-orthodox Jewish youth, millennial types, um, whether it's due to a, a sense of being apologetic about, uh, uh, you know, um, there's some self-hatred of Jews involved, or we, we want to be more global citizens than Jewish citizens, but whether those students are pursuing study of their Jewish history, and if not, if it's just the Orthodox or the Yeshiva or non-Jews who are curious, the same way Jewish students might take black history Right, right. How do we get our own <laughs> yeah. to study Jewish and to learn Jewish? All right, again, uh, you ask good questions. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I've obviously taught uh, non-Orthodox Jewish students uh, over the 45 years I've been teaching. Um, they were the majority at the University of Maryland. Uh, they were the majority at Yale. Uh, Penn is just a very unusual place uh, in the fact that I was also teaching pre-modern Jewish history primarily. Uh, my colleague Beth Wenger teaches modern Jewish history. She gets all of these secular, non-orthodox types taking the modern Jewish history course if they take any course in Jewish history. And my course in medieval history, or early modern history, will get more of the yeshiva types. That just, that's because Penn is a much more um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a haven for Orthodox Jewish students. But of course, even at Penn, I, I've, I've got students. I actually pursued on my own, since I was upset uh, that the Reformed Jewish community was so weak on campus, uh, I went to meet with them and I you know, tried to encourage them. And a number of them took my courses and so on. And they're you know, extraordinary bright kids who just don't have the background. I did remark, I think, in, uh, in, in one of my previous comments about the fact that um, it is really quite impressive to see these yeshiva kids. Most of the yeshiva kids would not study with me because they're studying at Wharton, you know, they're doing their business degrees and they wouldn't consider what I study to be Torah. Uh, so, you know, they wouldn't want to study with me. So the kids who, the Orthodox that take my courses are really modern Orthodox kids who are liberal enough to be able to say they study with Rudiman. Um, and it's, it's, it's just first, so, so I've already won them over. They're tolerant and ready to start with. I made a, you know, I, I, I score high in their, the, the rating. So they just sign up with me. Uh, and also it's interesting, uh, for years, Jeff Tigay taught Bible at Penn. Uh, and he's a good conservative rabbi and even more traditional than I am. Uh, but no Orthodox kid would sign up for his course because he taught JEP and D, taught biblical criticism. <laughs> But me, a medieval, you know, Shabtai uh, that's, that's okay. That doesn't matter, you know. That's parva. So it, did, it didn't bother them. So it's very interesting that, uh, you know, that, that they discover me. And 
Um, but I, you're, you're, we, we, look, let's, let's, I don't have exact statistics in front of me, but I would probably think that of all the Jewish students on campuses, maybe 10% uh, uh, will take uh, one academic course in Judaism. Uh, is that figure any different in the larger Jewish community? I mean, you know, <laughs> what percentage of, are, are you of the Jewish community of Orange County? I mean, you know, pretty small, right? Um, so it is a small group. I wish it was larger than that. I wish I could take every Jewish kid. In one semester, I can do more than they did in all the years of Sunday school. I'm absolutely sure of that. Uh, but I don't really always get the opportunity. Um, sometimes it even bothers me, and you know, I, I obviously love what, uh, Hillel at Penn is one of the largest programs in the country. Um, and they sort of allow every Jewish group to uh, have a presence. So there is Chabad, and there is Aish, and there is all of these, what I call Jewish missionary groups. And they're even paying students to sit and take their courses and so on, and sending them on trips to Israel and so on. And I just wonder, you know, I, I, I'm not going to reject what they do, but I wish they would give me the opportunity as well. Um, so uh, clearly, you know, I, let's, uh, the potential is there. We haven't realized it yet. And I don't know if we ever will. Um, but nevertheless, the 10% is significant. I, I've seen that this experience uh, is transformative for kids who have no background or for yeshiva kids who are re rethink their whole knowledge experience based on this, and particularly, as I argued earlier, it creates a greater tolerance for appreciating aspects of, of Jewish culture that they had ignored or you know, felt very uh, you know, defensive about before. Um, but the challenge is still there. In other words, um, I don't know if I told you this story, but for years, uh, one of the graduates at Penn is Michael Steinhardt. Do you know Michael? Um, he's a big financier that's given so much to um, uh, you know, um, Birthright and, and also uh, to Hillel, uh, enormous contributor to Hillel. Uh, and as a graduate of Penn, I went after, and he also gave, we have, it's called the Steinart Hillel at, uh, at Penn. Um, I, I got into a whole long debate with him. I remember getting kicked out of his office once. I said, you know, you have all these important things. Jewish studies is important too, and it makes Jews. And he said to me, Rudiman, you're foolish, you know, and uh, he said, it doesn't make any difference. That's the way he speaks. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. You know, you academics think that you're going to change the world. You're not really changing the world at all. And I argued with him back and forth over a series of letters. Uh, finally, I get a letter in the mail. Um, and it's a check for $300,000. And he says to me, you know, I really think you are full of crap, this, this, but I love your persistence. Uh, so so here was, this was a turn down for Michael Steinhardt. You know, so I mean, um, but I never convinced him really that, uh, and I remember uh, at, at the Hillel, uh, we had a, a, a big event, Phyllis, you remember, uh, at Hillel, and he, from the next table, shouted over to me, Runam and I still don't think you're right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, at, at least uh, I, I, there is a Steinhardt Fund in my, in my center at Penn. So, I, I mean, that's a long-winded answer, but, what I, but you're asking the right question, and um, we have modest results. Uh, but, of course, I was speaking about the impact of academic study way beyond how many students are in my classroom, even though that's an important element in there. Uh, and I still believe you can't just leave our books in the library or our scholarship, you know, to talk to other academics. Academics have to be pushed. 
to create a bridge uh, and you have to bring them, invite them in as you do. I mean, I'm speaking to the converted here. Last question. So, it's fair, okay. Okay, so my question is, do you see a paradox here in, in the history? You embrace the history, you love the history, but might the history, in fact, be the undoing of Judaism? The very things that you put forth here, the fact that the reliance is to remember, because if this didn't happen, if 600,000 people really didn't see this, then it's meaningless. I talked to a Chabad rabbi in Orange County, and he says, if Sinai didn't happen, I'd give it all up. I'd give it all up. So, and you speak of Judah Halevi, who's, who's asked in the Kuzari, you know, what, why Judaism? And he says, because, because God is a God of history, because it really happened, because God intervened. Once you place that importance on the belief that all this happened, and that is the reason for the belief, that is the reason for Judaism, if it falls away, if you, you know, uh, uh, believe in Israel Finkelstein's approach, then you have nothing. Then you have this about Rabbi saying, why, why did I even do it? So the history becomes very, very important, but it becomes a paradox when you have to say, as is said here, that, that if it didn't happen, if we didn't have the 600,000 people that witnessed it, it's a lie. Okay, um, you know, one after the other, those are tough questions. Okay, all right. Um, but right up until the end, you're, uh, you're challenging me. I appreciate it. Um, uh, your Shalmi also calls, when he doubts whether the historian has any role in the Jewish community, he calls, it's a very unfortunate phrase, but he calls history the faith of fallen Jews. Fallen Jews, of course, fallen is a Christian notion of falling from grace. So the, you know the idea that uh, that history therefore um, indeed has this this problem. Um, I guess I can only answer you in a Kaplanian fashion uh, that um, for some Jews uh, a belief in, from a Halevi perspective uh, in Sinai, uh, this fixed memory of the past and uh, a total commitment to Jewish law uh, in a supernatural sense. Uh, Dayenu, that works, that really works to make them Jews and that gives them that sense of, that intense sense of relationship to God and to the Jewish people. Um, but as you saw all along, I'm very much a Maimonidean or a Kaplanian, at least in the sense that uh, I need somehow to, my Judaism needs to address my intellect, my critical inquiry, my notion of the past, my freedom of thought, uh, whatever I find in the past. Um, as I started to recall, I spoke about historians being mechaye uh, hametim, they revive the dead. Uh, and that is a sacred task, you know, of going back into the past, of recalling all kinds of names that you never heard of before, uh, and essentially saying, zichronam uh, livracha, their memory, uh, by remembering them, that is a blessing. Um, but of course, warts and all, and you're right, uh, do we need Finkelstein's inquiries to really make us better Jews? Um, I think that's the danger, but that's also an appeal. In other words, I, I want to take that leap, I want to take that danger, 
of exploring the past wherever it will lead me, even if it leads me uh, to doubt or to question. But I also understand that as part of the process of my own Jewish identity. So here I'm speaking as an individual Jew here. Uh, so my, my inquiry in no way, and I, I honestly believe it, having had so many of these, uh, of these Jewish kids who come from you know, yeshiva background and so on, I honestly believe that uh, I do change and I do alter their perspective on the way they see the past. But it is also a, a, an avenue, a, a means of, of loving more, of appreciating more, of entering into a worlds of Judaism. Jews are indeed human beings. They're not this spiritual kind of myth of, they're, they're, they're real human beings with failings and with, and with also you know, little lower than the angels. They're both. Uh, and the historian explores both dimensions of that experience. Uh, and for me as a Jew, with my own critical uh, notion of, of, of the past, but also my love and appreciation for Jews and Judaism, somehow it works together for me. But I, I, I can't say it has to work for you that way. There are other paths. There are other avenues. But uh, nevertheless, what I want to do is find a language or find a way in which we can be in dialogue with each other. Um, even, you know, if Israel Finkelstein would stand before you, and I, I poor, poor Israel Finkelstein, he's taking a beating tonight. <laughs> um, do you, you want to stop or you want to go on? Well, so I want to wrap it up, so um, if you have other questions, maybe you can follow up privately afterwards. Thank you for being with us. For